Welcome to WetWired, episode 14, The Apocalyptic Visions of Christian Nationalism, with Thomas Lecoq. I'm Sean Andes. For the last few episodes of Fashboy Summer, we've been traveling through a dark gallery of alleyways trying to learn more about Christian extremists, ethno-nationalists, and white supremacists. We've been trying to figure out who they are, what motivates them, and what lengths they might go to in order to achieve their goals. So far, the news has been bad, bad, bad. But with us today, to join our watch party as our country inches ever closer toward becoming a crypto-fascist theocracy, is Thomas Lecoq. He's an associate professor of history. He also writes public essays on apocalyptism and religious violence in various places, including The Bulwark. Because I'm absolutely not a professional, I forgot to give Thomas a proper welcome to the show at the beginning of our conversation, so I'm going to throw you all in in media res. It's, uh, it's kind of cool. I, this summer, especially, finally, all of the kind of public writing I've been doing has started to like, I mean, it's always paid off, but like pay off in kind of like ways that my university will actually pay attention to. And uh-huh. that's really nice. Like NPR is finally enough to be like, oh, that's cool. You were on an NPR affiliate. Um, I just got an invitation from Columbia University to do, be part of uh, a speaker series for one of their institutes based on an article I did for Religion Dispatch. It's like, yes, I have arrived. This yeah, is cool. That is really cool. Very exciting. Yeah, I actually, j- I discovered articles you had written on The Bulwark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't even know about this. It, it's Twitter. I mean, it, it is it is the weird thing that's Twitter. I got my first publication in the Washington Post because of people I knew who had gone from academia into like writing journalism pieces who who introduced me. But after like the first two pieces, I don't know that I would have kept going, except I was musing on Twitter and um, Adam Kuyper, my editor at The Bulwark, mm-hmm. just messaged me and like, if you want to write this thing, send it to me. I was like, okay, sure, I'll write this thing. And at this point, I've written both singly and with my friend Jay, I think we've written 15 pieces for The Bulwark, all things considered. And it's like, it, it's, you know, from that, it started being me pitching things to other places. And it's, it's Twitter. Yeah. What do you do? As soon as I came across you, I was like, where has this guy been? Yeah. yeah. This is exactly up my alley, especially recently. Yeah. It's unavoidable. There's so many things going on right now that it is a space that is incredibly confusing and terrifying, but also magnetizing. Yeah. I, I can't take my eyes off of it most of the time. Yeah, no, that sounds right. No, it's it's interesting because, uh, I mean, the all of the white nationalism, like the religious violence stuff is just you know, I did my dissertation on the first crusade and theoretically the rest of the summer, I have to buckle down and finally finish uh, my my book. Um, starting in 2019, there's just so much of it in the public sphere that I thought I could write about stuff that's happening now. Mm-hmm. And that that really does it for me. The other thing that like I really am more interested in writing about these days than actually the crusades is stuff in game studies. And of course, things that are in game studies that are also about like white supremacy because there's so much of it. But uh it's kind of fun. Uh, the other project I have this summer is a co-authored piece with my friend Josh uh, on um, Fallout 4 and MAGA culture. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to love Fallout 4, uh, and I didn't. And I kept trying to figure out why I didn't like it. Um, and, and there are multiple small things, but part of it is the brotherhood, the brotherhood are fascists. Mm-hmm. And you can't escape the fact that the brotherhood are fascists. And I hate that the brotherhood are fascists. Yeah. And as exciting as blowing up their Zeppelin is, it's not exciting enough to make up for the fact that this group that I really enjoy interacting with in every other game, just like all of a sudden taking hard 
far right turn. Mm -hmm. And then you're allowed to treat them like they're heroes. I don't really have a structure in mind for our conversation. I, yeah. I figure, you know, just let's talk about whatever you want to talk about, the things that are occupying your attention right now. One of the things, obviously, that's huge is what our Supreme Court is doing. Oh, God. The thing that, that really caught my attention at first was your tweet about white nationalism, specifically in Bethesda video games, including yeah. Fallout. That was that was just an incredible talk. I mean, the like the 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 range of things that you covered, especially digging into what you were talking about uh, with the latest Wolfenstein and how there's the the Nazis were able to get the upper hand because they stole technology from a secret group of Jewish people. Yeah, so it makes them the heroes, but it also reinforces this narrative of Jewish space lasers. Yes, and controlling the world and the Rothschilds and everything, yeah. all these other things that are complete bullshit are given this credibility. Then we just move forward from there as if this is established fact. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and world building is so important. And you just, you, you desperately wish there was someone in the room who just been like, Hey, what if we did literally anything else? Right. Like this would have been like the one time, like if you had said aliens, I would have been so happy if you just said aliens. Yeah. Like there's a secret group of aliens living here. I, and that's still crazy, but, and it reinforces yeah. things that are also out there. And, you know, yeah, well, and, and they would, and they would have inevitably made them reptilian humanoids, which right, is exactly. also I was an anti conspiracy I, theory. I was just going to bring David Icke into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Okay. So no, no, it would, it wouldn't come back there no matter what. <laughs> there's think, really no way of that, doing like, it. The original game was like there was an alternate universe. They had tapped into an alternate universe and I, I haven't played Youngblood yet. And uh -huh. I think that they get back to that at the end of Youngblood from what I've heard. But like you could have just started there, right? You yeah. Could, like there's so many possibilities where you didn't have to go, what if it's the secret Jews? Right. I mean, that is literally the worst case scenario for what you yes. can use for your backstory. Yes. Is, is the secret Jewish cabal. Yes. And yeah. they went with it anyway. Yeah. They just like happily went with it. But these were the these were the right kind of Jews that weren't trying to control the world. Oh, they man. were just doing Wakanda in a Jewish way. Oh God! When you say it like that, it makes it even worse. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't realize how bad it could be, and now and now here we are. Here we are. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and this is. Uh, I think I don't. I think the problem is people just really uncritically throw ideas in and don't think about the repercussions. And it's the reason why Fallout New Vegas remains my favorite, because no matter what you do at the end of Fallout New Vegas, Fallout New Vegas is very clear, like, well, good try. Here are all the people you fucked. Mm -hmm. You went in with the best of intentions. These people still got hurt because that's real life. Or you join the fascists and everyone you've ever loved is dead. And there's just a string of bodies all the way into Vegas. And then a bunch of crucified bodies around it. Congratulations. You're a fucking monster. Right. And like, I feel like so many of these games don't actually force you to deal with the repercussions of your actions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you join the Stormcloaks in Skyrim and you end up with Khajiit bodies hanging from the trees, all of a sudden, like, I'm not as mad anymore because at least you force the player like, oh, this is what you did. You joined right. the fascists. Congratulations. This is yeah. what fascists do. So tell me a little bit about how you decided on this area as your focus. I mean, because you're coming out mm -hmm. of uh, out of the medieval period and and slightly before I mean, I, I can see the connection and how it's arrived, you know, how you're arriving at it because I've seen your comments about specifically the Crusades and the and correcting mistruths and just absolute, you know, just absolute, really just trolling. Yeah. 
these aren't necessarily people that are trying to spread disinformation. They're, you know, they're, they're simply reacting in the only way in, in the only way they can think of to get attention. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the reason I ended up doing um, crusading and apocalypse in the first place is that I grew up in small town, Missouri uh, in the nineties and early two thousands. And apocalypticism is alive and well in contemporary Christianity. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the, that idea never actually goes away. And I mean, I remember people's houses who had like the full left behind series. I remember people who were very convinced that we were living in the end times. Um, you know, I, I had friends who were happily discussing that, like if they got hit by a car and died tomorrow, they'd go straight to heaven. And this kind of martyrdom narrative that like, you know, death is a good thing because yeah. it gets us to heaven faster. And as a non-Christian, it was always just something that was really startling every time I saw it. And these are people that I love and I respect, and I think that their worldview, you know, I, I know them. They're people who are grounded in the world around right. me, but there is also this component that is not part of this kind of ultra-rational world that I had constructed in my head. And so rather than think that that makes them crazy or weird, I just want to understand. Yeah. And so this is how I started getting interested in kind of um, religion or religious studies. And that carried through to, to when I decided to study the Crusades. It was my, um, well... Medieval studies in general, it was uh, the summer before my fifth year of undergrad. I transferred schools. Um, I, I was going to Tulane University in New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, from 2003 to 2005, and I ended up transferring schools after Hurricane Katrina, which meant I took an extra year of undergrad. And I was going to work on uh, originally 20th century Russian history, uh -huh. which unfortunately would also be very relevant right now in the worst possible ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Russian is a difficult language and I am not naturally gifted in learning new languages. Uh, and the summer before my fifth year of undergrad, I was in France at my grandparents' house and I was reading um, Stephen Runciman's History of the Crusades. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like, this is really interesting. Why, why, why am I not looking at medieval stuff? I love going to castles. My dad's a medieval art historian. I've always been fascinated by the Middle Ages. Why did I never do this? So I switched my entire you know, last year's schedule to take languages, to take some uh, medieval studies classes, did a master's degree in English to pick up more languages and work on kind of medieval literature, and then did a PhD where I was debating between um, going to uh, a program in Byzantine studies. Um, and I remain just, I, I, love, I love Byzantine studies. Byzantium is just a fascinating empire and culture and a place that I, I care about deeply. And the University of Tennessee to work with my eventual doctoral advisor, Jay Rubenstein, to work on the Crusades. Um, and I had the University of Tennessee. Jay had just started working on kind of the apocalyptic aspects of the Crusades, which fascinated me. And that's that's mm -hmm. how I ended up with that. So I'm still interested in the Crusades and in apocalypticism and in the Middle Ages. I was teaching in my kind of uh, my second job uh, after finishing my PhD um, at a community college in downstate New York, SUNY Orange, which I adore, when Donald Trump was elected president. Uh -huh the reaction to the kind of ideological reaction that followed and the way that kind of religion and violence and apocalypticism and all the stuff that I was studying and working on in my book, all of a sudden was popping up everywhere in the media. Literally everywhere. Literally everywhere. Um, this is before QAnon, and I didn't start writing until after QAnon had become a thing, but like it, even before QAnon, it's, it's the preachers, it's the religious groups that were so excited about his election, it's the stealing Mm. Oh uh, yeah, of Supreme Court seats because I think that you know we, we have violated uh, the functional process so clearly in the way Congress uh, under Mitch McConnell refused to allow hearings. Mm -hmm. we, that's a different conversation. But it's entirely interrelated, though, and yeah. the the motives too are entirely interrelated. Yes, 
Yes, they very, very, very much are. Um, and it took me a little bit longer because because I was just starting to be like, hey, I, I can pay attention to modern things too. Right? Mm-hmm. I can pay attention to the world around me with a kind of critical academic lens too. It took me a bit longer to figure out like, oh no, this is this is all of it. This is all of it simultaneously. And then in 2019, um, while I was getting more involved in kind of politics watching because I'm in Iowa uh, and the last caucus uh, was a really rich opportunity to pay attention to the way politicians and political candidates actually kind of frame policy or fa- fail to frame policy, the things they go and do in uh, in a state with a lot of small towns, the things that they're willing to talk about. I started thinking about the fact that like I could actually talk about politics. And so I wrote this piece um, for the Washington Post uh, about apocalypticism and Donald Trump as an idea of why evangelicals support him using the medieval last world emperor legend. Mm-hmm. The idea that your apocalyptic figure who kickstarts effectively the apocalypse is a flawed secular ruler, someone who's coming in the model of David, uh, who is beloved by God, but is a deeply flawed character, Mm -hmm. um, who will be the last emperor, who will reunite uh, the Roman Empire, will wage a final battle against Islam, will lay down his crown and scepter on the Mount of Olives, Jesus will descend together, they'll fight the Antichrist and win the apocalypse. But this is a secular figure, right? And and the secular emperors are all going to be flawed figures. And as long as they do the right thing in the end, however you have to force them to do it, great. Of course, the flip side of that is that if they don't put down the crown and scepter, they become the Antichrist. But that's heading back to the area that I study and the First Crusade. So I wrote this piece, uh, workshopped it heavily. It got published. It got an incredible readership. Uh-huh. I mean, like I, I, you know, I think that there may be 30 to 50 people who are really waiting for my book. Mm-hmm. And I really want to share it with those 30 to 50 people who have almost all heard me present most of the arguments that are in my book. And I'm going to do it and it's going to be great. And like, it's going to be good for my career. And I'm going to be happy to be able to talk about it with, with these people who are my friends and my colleagues huh. in Crusade Studies. De- definitely put me on that list. Excellent. But we're now, we're now to like somewhere in the 31 to 51. Yeah. Right? Very exciting. <laughs> Um, I don't, I, I think that, I think that the metrics I was shown is that something like, uh, 80,000 people, 80 to a hundred thousand people, or at least, uh, clicked on the link, individual clicks on the link the first day that the piece was out. Yeah. That, that is absolutely extraordinary on a personal level, but it, it really doesn't surprise me because I think that there is an enormous body of people who are trying to figure out what's going on and make some sense out of something to find some context to be able to put all these apparently disparate pieces you know they they want some some sort of some kind of an outline that they can fill in and give them some sense of what the hell's been going on because whether it's been overtly identified on an individual level or not people are aware in some sense that we're watching the dissolution of a lot of established structures. Yeah. What they don't really, I, I think that's what, what may be a little bit less commonly acknowledged is that this has been a long time coming. Yeah. And it's yeah. also probably part of a, of a larger cyclical pattern that we're not necessarily aware of as well, where we see things rise up and then dissolve and new, and new things come up. But it's this interim period, you know, this, this liminal moment where the, the old thing is falling apart and is no longer reliable. And the new thing is not yet there. Yes. I think that that's a great moment for absolute terror because you don't know what the new thing is going to be or when it's going to arrive. And both of those things are an opportunity to be completely terrified. Yeah. You know, like, because the new thing could be awful and it could also come 
next week, <laughs> you know, anywhere in there. Yeah. And this is where I really see this, this sort of eschatology fitting in because, yeah. you know, th this is the perfect moment, you know, because the new thing can be, you can paint yourself into whatever the new thing is going to be just as easily. I, I think that's one of the reasons why QAnon has developed so much momentum be as wild as it is. I mean, looking at it from the outside, it's absolutely insane to believe any of these things are even remotely plausible. Yet that's exactly what's happened. And, you know, it's sort of the definition of faith, you know, like there's absolutely no evidence, but I believe it anyway. Yes. You know, so they have a lot of faith. <laughs> Not necessarily in, you know, obviously we both know Q is back and posting again and, <laughs> you know, or dropping and whatever. <laughs> and, and we're all very sad about it. And everybody's, everybody is definitely depressed. <laughs> but there is there are also a lot of people who don't even believe, you know, the legitimacy of these recent posts. And... Yeah. Very reasonably are associating it with Jim Watkins and all the QAnon lore and everything. Everybody has this chance right now, though, including, you know, the apocalyptic preachers to decide what the next thing is going to be, at least in their own imagination, and then convince their own congregations of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just did an episode on um, that where we talked quite a bit about Greg Locke at, uh, oh, in gosh. Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And, yep. you know, the and I, I lived there for a while. And, okay. you know, so... I never went to, you know, any, any, you know, sort of Southern Baptist revivals or anything like that, but I probably would now, <laughs> you know, now, yeah. now that I'm much more interested in, in, in observing these things firsthand and, you know, sort of watching these old structures dissolve in front of my eyes. But I, I remember the vibe in that place at the time. And, you know, there were people referring back to the, to what is it? The second awakening. And, you know, that, that period in, in religious revival in yes. U.S. history, what, what, just, just before Civil War, I think, is when that happened. Yeah. That is exactly the same kind of energy they're drawing on. And I think that we, we can probably see, not, not necessarily an analog, but at, at least some similarities to what was going on in that antebellum period and now. You know, like, there, there was a lot of polarization happening over abolition. I think that we're seeing some, some similar things occurring in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, um, the thing about apocalypticism is that, a war, and I, I loved using this in uh, with the honors class I taught in the spring on kind of post-apocalyptic literature, that a world is always ending. And of course, a new one is always being born, but people want to have a stake in shaping that new world, mm -hmm. right? And the people right now, uh, the the people who join groups like QAnon, the groups, the people who are part of these kind of overtly Christian nationalist congregations. Um, I did my my doctoral work in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, Patriot Church has what has their headquarters in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I've written about them before. Yeah. They they are kind of these overt Christian yeah, I've been, nationalists. I've been following him as well. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. great. Oh, yeah, having, we're having such a good time. Yeah, and he spoke on January fifth, the the day before the you know the the riot of the Capitol building, and. He was up there with, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, Sean, what was it? There was a, like a Sean Fuhr and like a bunch of these. That's who it was. There. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, Joshua something is with the other guy that I'm thinking of. Oh, man. Yes. Uh, who has who has gone back and spoken at the church since. Yeah. Feuerstein, Joshua Feuerstein. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yep. Joshua yeah, Feuerstein. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all the people, all of the Jericho March people yeah. are 
Yeah, yeah, and all the people who came in to to join with him. I mean, you know, Sean Moon of Rod of Iron was there on January sixth. I mean, we can really just. Oh yeah, Sean. I Sean did Moon not. Of Rod of Iron. I did people not know were, that he uh, was there too. I had no idea. So, I mean, that's a whole other thing uh, with, with Mastriano. Yeah, with oh, Doug yes, Mastriano. That's that's I mean, that's, that's yeah. Yeah, uh, the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, making making sure that we are all living our best life. Yeah. Um, he, well, they're uh, you know they're keeping us on our toes. Darkest, <laughs> keeping us on our toes, making sure we know we're living in the darkest of all timelines. It's you know, yeah, it's the uh, it's Charlie Sheen and uh, Apocalypse Now when he's in the hotel room. Every day I'm here, Charlie's getting stronger and I'm getting weaker. <laughs> like oh, we're we're God. out there. We're out there in the shit now. <laughs> like oh, we're all getting stronger yes. every day. <laughs> yes, and it just it never stops. It never it never slows down. But yeah, but I mean this is the thing, right? For them, for them, this is a pivotal moment. And for us, it's a pivotal moment too. But for them, there is the religious calling aspect of it that I think is clear for a lot of these groups that they they want this to be an apocalypse mm -hmm. right and not the way we think about it now in kind of the the cold war and onwards period where you know you say apocalypse and people picture like the fallout video game series and so it's you know a nuclear wasteland oh sure yeah zombies or the post-pandemic they very much mean the second coming and the kingdom that they want to build is one that uh is i mean effectively a crusader vision mm -hmm. you're going to build it on a stack of bodies and you're going to cleanse your way to the new world this is the thing about QAnon that QAnon can move past Q. QAnon can move past Donald Trump. It's doing both because the endpoint of QAnon is that you murder all of your enemies and you build a new nation on their bones, mm -hmm. right? That's a pretty simple endpoint. It's also, that is surface level QAnon ideology. If people know about QAnon, they know that part of it. Um, this is not like the weird fringe movements that you have to bring in on various sides. I think a lot of these Christian nationalist groups are perhaps less overtly bloodthirsty mm -hmm. i think many of them simply want to legislate their way into permanent power but in right. ways that are aggressively anti-democratic there are others that are on the fringes that are decidedly violent um nick fuentes who is one of the organizers of the america first um political action committee he's the leader of the so-called groiper movement the groipers yeah the Groypers, uh, who, who's taken a, a Christo-fascist bent to try to kind of, I, I think, distract from kind of the weirdness of his uh, turn to being a full incel, um, but was saying that like non-Christianity shouldn't be allowed anywhere. Mm -hmm. Christianity should rule over the entire planet. No one should be allowed to be wrong the way he said it. Well, these are, these are people who mean that in the most aggressively fascist way possible. Lauren Boebert just said it publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, so I think Boebert is really interesting because I think much like Marjorie Taylor Greene, she has a shtick. I think the thing is people look at her credentials and make a lot of really classist assumptions about her that she plays into deliberately. But I think of her in the same way that like George W. Bush was playing the kind of folksy Texan, even though he's a rich Connecticut kid. Right. Right. That this is an excellent act that lulls people in and makes them dismiss her. Um, actually, I think she's quite savvy. Mm -hmm. I mean, she just won, she just won her primary quite handily. Mm -hmm. uh, I unfortunately assume that she'll get reelected. And when you listen to her talking at like churches and revivals and things like that, I, I know that the things, the sound bites that we get, are things that feel so absurd that they have to be mocked. Right? The idea that uh, if Jesus had had his AR-15, the guy, if the government had taken away Jesus' AR-15, they never would have killed him. Yeah, obviously she knows about the resurrection. Right. That's not the point. Everyone in the audience with her knows about the resurrection. It was a religious conference at a, at a church, right? Everyone here knows Everybody what the, knows. Point of the gospel yeah. is. That's not what she's saying. What she's saying is that the gun is divine. Mm -hmm. 
She's talking about fighting the government. When she's saying there should be no separation between church and state, yeah, I assume that she's aware that the separation of church and state is a foundational element of the United States. She doesn't like it. Right. She is saying the quiet part out loud. She's just saying it more competently than some of the other people in ways that we laugh at while the people who are hearing her understand what she's really meaning. And I think this is the problem that she is deliberately doing it and invoking it in a way that outsiders will laugh at and people on the inside know that she means. Mm -hmm. And we are, and we are falling for it. We are falling for it and doing it over and over again. She is simply promoting Christian nationalist rhetoric on a whole host of grounds and doing it quite well. We underestimate, we underestimate our opponents an awful lot. And I, I know that, you know, it's, it's the grossness of the Occupy Democrats uh, tweet that you're going to decide that the correct way to deal with this is rather than engage with the ideas and the rhetoric you're going to slut shame, you're going to uh, launch attacks against sex workers and things like that. And you're going to think that, oh, well, because it's someone we don't like, that makes it okay. Okay, but we're mad, we're mad when the other side does it. No, we don't, we don't do this. Also, Lauren Boebert is very competent. You need to engage with her ideas. You need to fight her on ideas. You need to not make up gross rumors about her because that just makes you the bad guy too. You have to engage with the fact that she is selling a powerful, heady mix of Christian nationalism and doing it well enough that people keep inviting her to talk. Yeah, that like that that whole incident with you know discovering that she was you know listed in the and mo that model registry and was an escort and whatever else has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. You know, all, all these people that are out there hunting for hypocrisy or something like that, they don't realize that that doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter if somebody says something and did something else. Yeah. What does matter is what they're, what they actually are doing now. Yeah. Not what they are talking about doing, you know, because they're, I mean, she, she is saying these things, obviously. I, I don't really think there even is a quiet part anymore. For a lot of people, I think there's no, just there's not. just the overt language that they're using. Yeah, there is kind of a a game that gets played where they don't necessarily you know like speak in a direct sort of way about some things, but everybody understands the code that's listening to them. All of the yeah. all of the people following them that are on the same page, they know exactly what's been said. Yes, and you know, so we're we're past the point of dog whistles. Even this is a a known code. Anybody can break it, but at the same time, you have this wiggle room and you only need that for a little bit more though. We don't, we're, we're, we're fast approaching the point where the wiggle room will no longer be necessary, yeah. where things can just be said bluntly. Yes. And I think, I think, you know, the, the Supreme Court decisions of the last week, what, week and a half, the, the gentle dismantlement of the world that we thought that we lived in, um, gentle dismantlement, the uh, open chainsawing of the world yeah. that we thought we lived in. Slow motion coup. Earth. Oh, I, and you know, it doesn't feel that slow motion. I know. Anymore. Well, That's considering the number of hard, rulings but... that have happened just this term. Oh, God. And, I mean, and, and just like all here at the end, slamming it through. And the promise, uh, I mean, it, it's what? It's the promise next term to review the one about allowing um, state legislatures to effectively ignore federal election yeah. law. Right. That's that's it. That's that's the that's the end. If we're not already there, it's only going to ramp up. Right. It, they have the Supreme Court in their pocket. And that that ruling, unless something really unpredictable happens is it's already written, I, I, you know, regarding the state legislatures and their control over, over state elections, uh, over, you know, yeah. over how they, how they, how they manage their elections and ignoring federal election law. That's done. Yes. Everything's, you know, everything's finished except for the signatures. Yeah. Well, and, and whose signatures are going to be on it? Yeah. It's the question of, is that one a six, three, or is that one a five, four? Yeah. Uh, uh, which is not like, that's not comforting. No. 
that's not comforting at all. That doesn't make me feel better that, you know, you might only squeak by with destroying America instead of, uh, instead of running away with it. Well, you know, if that's where we are, we're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. So I think that the rhetoric is only going to amp up from here, especially heading into the midterms. It's going to amp up heading into the midterms um, because you want to draw out people to vote and you want to drive out the people who are most motivated to vote and driving drawing out your Christian nationalists. Well, that's, that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. I would assume some of these groups feel like they're winning right now. Mm-hmm. I know, I know that there is the hope that the, uh, destruction of Roe v. Wade is going to bring out a tidal wave against Republican candidates. I hope it's true. God, I hope it's true. Um, I think it's going to bring out, well, I guess it's the question of how many Christian nationalists are left who aren't already voting. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that I think becomes the real question. Are, are, is there still a margin of uncommitted voters who are going to see that and hear the rhetoric and think, yes, good, now we're going to vote? Yeah. And that I don't know. That, that's a, a real question to me because I tend to think that those groups have already been heavily engaged and already show up. Um, maybe it'll re-incentivize some of the people who were tired of Donald Trump's personality antics language. I don't know how many of them there are. Yeah, I don't. I, I think that the people that are going to sit it out because they're tired of Trump, they haven't really gotten much of him recently. Any of that exhaustion yeah. is is pretty much, you know, they're they're well rested now if they were exhausted from Trump. Because yeah, unless you hang out on True Social, you're not really hearing anything. Yeah, well, and you know what? I bet most of them. I I, I would assume that many of them just voted for a different presidential candidate and then voted their party down ticket. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think so. I don't I don't know that there is a huge population that they can um, draw from. Mm-hmm. I hope that there's not a huge population they can draw from. But we don't know. Yeah. Um, I think the rhetoric is going to amp up to try to bring in whoever they can from a lot of the candidates. And you know, looking at the primaries, I think that I think it's a pretty sound prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, a number a number of the most aggressively far right candidates lost. Right. Candace Taylor in Georgia, the, the Jesus Guns babies. Oh, yeah. Uh, Less lost, but like Cheese Guns Babies is is now just mainstream as an easy slogan with different names. I mean, it's, it's already there. She's just the one running with it on the side of a bus. Um, Mark Burns in South Carolina, the one who was calling for um, HUAC to investigate uh, people pushing LGBTQIA plus indoctrination, trying them for treason and executing them, lost. Great. It doesn't mean that you don't have far right groups uh, attacking pride events still, right? It doesn't. It doesn't dismantle the hate. Right. Uh, it doesn't stop the. I think the last article I read on it said something like 240 anti-LGBTQIA um, bills have been passed by state legislatures, most of them targeting uh, transgender uh, youth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's bad. It's really bad. And it only, I mean, it feels like it's only going to get worse from here. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Right? That is that is terrifying. The thing is, is that every every system ends eventually. Yeah. Right. Every system ends. And this will also happen to the system they're building. It's just how quickly and at what cost. Yeah, that that uh, that brings up something else that's been on my mind is this this intersection between the end times apocalyptic evangelicals and just the totally secular accelerationists. There's a lot of shared energy between these groups and hastening the, the, the destruction of of these institutions that we've all been used to. You know, obviously, we don't have a religious motivation on the one side, but we do. It, I think the accelerationist, you know, I don't know, movement, you know, like adherence, you know, yeah, they seem to be motivated by wanting to see it happen. 
Yeah. Not in this sort of death wish kind of way, but just being present sort of uh, at the end of the universe. Yeah. You know, to, to watch it fall. Yes. You know, and, and so I, I think that you know, you end up with this when, when you're, when we're, you know, when we move back over to the, the theologically motivated ones, I think that we can, we can probably see how that energy is in there too. That want, not just, you know, let's bring about the end times finally after all these years has been promised. That's, you know, like, let's make this happen. But also, I want to be there. Yeah. You know, I want to see it happen. Yeah. You know, rather than being brought back, I want to actually witness the fall. Yes. Those two groups just they they weave together in that particular way because of this very similar motivation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I think the area where they intersect the most readily. Um I think I think that for a lot of the ones, especially the ones who um focus on like Western chauvinism ideas, mm -hmm. um, you know, Patriot Front, Proud Boys, a number of them, uh aspects of Christian nationalism are woven in whether or not it's overt absolutely right? their their notion of what america is supposed to be is a white christian nation even if they are more concerned with the white than the christian or simply the destruction of democracy because of that association they they, they have yeah. it baked in yeah yes and we we have a lot of this baked in just in our general culture simply because yes. we've grown up here this is where yes. we live these are the experience this is the environment you know that and you know in which we grew up we we've absorbed these things yeah. You you lived around a lot of church going people and didn't oh, yeah. know yourself. These ideas were everywhere, even if they were not overtly related directly to the to the religion. Yeah. You know, there's a group, I believe they're it's a, you know, it's one of these these uh men's rights sort of groups called um Wolf Pack, I think is what it is. And yeah, of course, right? And so yeah. they overtly have this allegiance to this sort of after the fact reinvented Nordic structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, it's entirely, it's an entirely sort of Christian kind of worldview, even though they're, you know, they're painting in runes and Odin and things like that. Yeah. You know, but they're painting it on top of this Christian structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there, there are a number of kind of uh, far right groups that, that fall in this kind of very specifically neo-pagan group that's really like, how can you take what the neo-Nazis said about pagans and make them your thing? And like, fine, uh, the, the Nazis the Nazis were also coming out of kind of a secularized Christianity when they were building these structures anyway. I think I think this is this is part of the ongoing problem is that, you know, it, it is it is even even the non-Christian nationalists are going to impose Christian nationalism. It just depends on what flavor it is. And it's going to be bad for everyone. And the part that I find always, um, you know, in intellectually fascinating, while also like desperately just simply never wanting to know because we stop it in time, is these disparate groups that are all united on the idea that you need to dismantle the United States um, and that you need to I mean, effectively all of them want to wipe out the minorities in this country, right? Whether or not they say it overtly or not, like these are groups that want to remove religious, ethnic, political groups that are not their own from this country. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's say you succeed, it won't be a problem. I'll be dead. This is no longer this is no longer my fight. May my zombified corpse come back and destroy all of you. But after the fact, you're still going to have to oppress someone. Once you build an oppressive state, you have to find the next group to oppress. You never stop finding a group to oppress. At what point how quickly does the the alliance between Catholics and Protestants collapse? Yeah. Because historically in the United States, that's not going to go. I mean, how how long before the the resurgent body decides that Mormons aren't Christians anymore? Right, and and right, probably not long. 
because no. this has been an uneasy sort of alliance from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we saw, well, look at, I mean, just a, just a few election cycles ago, and it seems like yeah. it was decades at this point when Mitt, yes. when Mitt Romney was the Republican candidate, there was a lot of trouble with that. Yeah. And they, they worked hard to sort of gather everybody in. It's like, well, you know, see, he likes yeah. Jesus too. Yeah. 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 And that was really the whole thing's hinging on it. You know, that, okay, you both like Jesus. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm really, I, you know, in, in many ways, I'm very grateful for for Mitt Romney getting the nomination because it at least uh, curtailed some of the kind of incredibly aggressive anti-LDS rhetoric that existed within kind of uh, the Republican Party and with, within uh, evangelical churches, at least temporarily. But these are only temporary fixes, right? If if you build, I mean, if you build a Christian theocracy, at what point, who starts getting oppressed first? And then where does it stop? Because only one faction is going to win. I mean, effectively, the freedom of religion was to keep any one denomination of Protestantism from taking over. No one who's not a Puritan wants to live in the Puritan states of America. Right. Right. No one who's not a Quaker wants to live in Pennsylvania. Every, every non-Quaker in Pennsylvania had issues with the way Pennsylvania was being run. Nobody wanted the Catholics in charge. Right. Right. That, 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 I mean, that's a much older uneasy alliance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, we, we, you can reflect back and just see the kind of trouble that, that JFK had when he was running for president yes. because nobody wanted the Pope in charge of the country. Yes, and because no one bothers to understand what Catholicism is, they have weird ideas about it. Like those ideas haven't gone anywhere. I, I grew up in one of the towns where I know people who, you know, believe that there were Christians and then there were Catholics as if these were two separate things, mm -hmm. right? That hasn't gone away. I mean, just looking at the trolls who have popped into my mentions in the last week, there are still plenty of people who say nonsense like that out loud. You know, the, these groups, it's not like these groups are going to build a functional government on the other side, but there's going to be so much bloodshed along the way that it, it almost doesn't matter, right? Like most of us would not be here right. by the point that you have to worry about that. And the, the main issue is not how to rule, but is how to gain power. Yes. Getting there yeah. is the end goal. Yes. And then, you know, there's the joke of, you know, like how to, how to, you know, run a successful company or start a successful startup. And it's basically, you know, step A, have an idea, step B, question mark, step C, success. And, you know, so the, in, in this case, those, those, those are, you know, they're sort of reversed a little bit because the, the, the whole agenda is to just arrive at the point where they are in charge and then can do what they need to do to sort of bring about the rapture. But there's nothing else after that because there is nothing else after that. It's all kingdom yeah. of heaven stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this, so this is the thing about Donald Trump is that the, I mean, I, I hate to, I hate to say something nice about former president Trump, but thank <laughs> God former president Trump was, uh, was as lazy, voluntarily ignorant and self-obsessed as he was, because if he were more disciplined, competent, and had a broader range of vision, we would have been in even more trouble than we already were. You put a more competent far-right figure in the White House, knowing what we know now, and suddenly suddenly, democracy is dead, right? A Ron, a Ron DeSantis uh, administration in control of Congress and the Supreme Court, and suddenly we're somewhere in Hungary. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are people who are very, well, you know, CPAC was hosted in Hungary this year. So I know that there are people who would love to see <laughs> the, uh, the the destruction of Hungarian democracy come to the United States. And those people are all trying to push for it uh, to come. But if you had more competent, if you had had a more competent president, one who is less aggressively megamaniacal and less aggressively kleptocratic, mm -hmm. it would be, it would be already worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that scares me in the next couple of years is that you have to stop that at all costs. And how? Right. 
vote, voting is great up until the point where um, the Supreme Court rules that you know there are, there are no laws about elections not paid by state legislatures that are in the hands of Republicans who don't democracy anymore. Okay, well, what do you do then? Mm-hmm. What do you do when the electoral system is in the hands of people who actively promote the quote unquote big lie, which you know people don't actually believe? I don't think anyone actually well. I know some people believe this, but like there was an article, I think it was in the Bulwark today, that effectively the big lie is just a lie to allow people who don't believe in democracy to give themselves an out. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds about right. That's the kind of stuff that that worries me because it doesn't matter that after the fact all of these people will fight about what flavor of fascism takes over. Right. When you're fighting about which flavor of fascism wins, we've already lost. So we're we're back to you know sort of a, a retelling with different characters and and different motives. We're but it's back to the same sort of palace intrigue that took place in during the Bolshevik Revolution. Now you had you had a bunch of people that had disparate ideas that were largely unified by one sort of core type belief, which was empowerment of essentially the the lowest classes in society. But they all had very different things that they wanted that that they had on their personal agendas. And we saw who came out on top, which was the worst ones. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you read the uh, the 1776 returns plan that the Proud Boys had on them, they call their first phase storming the Winter Palace. <laughs> okay. They, they, I mean, they, they literally <laughs> directly know referenced that. <laughs> this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was a there was a quote um, in a Daily Beast piece um, that the author said he had a conversation with Steve Bannon at a party where Bannon had proclaimed himself a, a Leninist, um, and I think Bannon has disputed this since. But the, the quotation in the Daily Beast piece was that um, Lenin wanted to destroy the state, and that's my goal too. I want to bring everything crashing down and destroy all of today's establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know not not the other ideological aspects, but that one. Yeah, no, that one seems to be what some of these groups want, mm-hmm. is simply the destruction of the current establishment. And then what gets built afterwards is for somebody else to – and that's that's a real problem. That is that is the kind of stuff that scares me. And it's, it's this, it's this you know, wide range of different conflicting ideologies because the topic I wanted to study originally was the Russian Civil War. That was the topic I was originally interested in. It wasn't so much, it wasn't so much the Bolsheviks as every other group. Uh-huh. Right, because there is no white faction. No. There are six or seven other groups that are simply not the Bolsheviks fighting them, including uh, at least one group that wanted to, to build a, a kind of free step. You have religious revival movements. You know, you have the groups that are being funded by foreign governments. You have all of these other factions that are simply not them, from royalists to Mensheviks to to people who want to build a republic. Mm-hmm. You had um, the so-called green factions, which were basically unending peasant rebellions. They're like. Um, Fuck all of you! Get off my land, mm-hmm. and we, and we will kill you in order to in order to achieve this. You had the uh, the black faction, the Crimea, a kind of uh, straight up anarchist army. These are the things that have happened in history that we would like to have never happen again. Yeah. No one came out of this feeling good about themselves or feeling good about the state of things. It, it really seems like we are on a very similar course right now. I don't know if it's train tracks, but wow, yeah. it, it is deep ruts in the road. It is. It's getting harder and harder to, you know, to to yank the steering wheel off to the, you know, off to the side. Yeah. It, so, so this is this is the thing, right? Like at the moment, I, I cannot be objective enough to to speculate about the future because right now it feels so cataclysmic. Mm-hmm. Right. We are we are watching the. I mean, for me, it's it's the idea that throughout my life, a world has always been ending. Mm-hmm. Of course. Right. When the Berlin Wall falls, a world ended. Exactly. 
Right. The new one, the new one reemerges quickly, and they're from many of the pieces of the old. But a world ended for me. Um, you know, 9-11 is the end of a world. It's the end of a lot of worlds. The, the Soviet um, Union dissolved. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the end. This is the end of a world in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, for me, 2000, uh, 2005, Hurricane Katrina, my world ended. Exactly. The levees broke and the world ended for me. Um, and that one that one took lots of time to, to rebuild. 2007, 2008, and the economic collapse, I feel like ended the world for most millennials. I believe so, too. Every dream we had about what the future was going to be uh, fundamentally changed and then never established. COVID was the end of the world. Exactly. Over and over um, again, we, we, we witnessed these things. And over again. This right now also feels like the end of a world. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not the end of the world. No, 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 Because no. I'm not one of the Christian nationalists. Yeah. This I do not believe in, you know, the pit is not going to open. The man lion locusts are not going to come out. This is not my bad. We're not looking but for the beast the with seven heads world. anywhere. <laughs> no, I, I, prefer, I prefer not to. I, you know, my, my favorite my favorite medieval apocalyptic manuscripts make that seem like that's going to suck. I'd like to not have that. It's all things considered. Um, Lake of fire and everything. World, <laughs> you know, if it would just open under the right. Um, no, we don't want that. That's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. We'd be very unhappy. Um, yeah, there are no right people as candidates for the Lake of Fire. Like, no, regardless no, of who no, the people are, they're they are not the right people for the Lake of Fire. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what it was it's, it's the de- the death of a third of the stars. No, thank yeah, you. Right. No, thank you. I want none of that. <laughs> less less of this. Less of this. Of this particular uh, interpretation. Um, but it does feel like the end of a world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that there there will be a new world on the other side. And I just, I want it to be a better world than what it looks like right now. And I, I insist at all costs that we have to find the slender thread of hope, right? Because no matter how bad things are, you have to figure out where where that tiny that tiny silver thread is, where is that one light in the darkness? And then you have to latch onto that with both hands and hold on like your life literally depends on it because it does. And you have to pull yourself out and fight like hell to find that better world on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where it is right now, but we have to find it and we have to grab hold of it. And then we have to fight like hell to find the better version. Mm -hmm. And then that world, that world too will end. And if it's one of the bad worlds, great. We have to kill it quickly and we have to build a new one on the other side. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, the, the problem with being a historian is that um, we we are often called on to predict the future, and we are we are terrible seers. We are the worst visionaries. Uh, we we make garbage prophets. Um, we just see the way things have been, and then we desperately hope to not live through interesting times. And then somehow, unfortunately, we live through interesting times anyway. Yeah. So I don't know what's coming. I don't feel great about it. I don't feel great about it with my historian hat. Um, I don't feel great about it with my living in America hat. But every time I feel like I know how things are going to go, I'm surprised, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. This time, I'm hoping we can figure out a way to have things change for the better. God, please, if we could somehow take enough seats uh, in the fall to to make substantive change, yeah, right? That would be something. Uh, maybe someone find find the spot find uh, find the spine of the handful of senators who are keeping us from uh, making any real change. It's a it's a scary time. You know, we're not. I, I don't think we're not going to end up in the Bolshevik revolution. I, I just don't want us to end up in the 19, uh, 1920s again. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night is not the possibility of us being like another country, but us being like us a century ago. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read Kelly Baker's gospel according to the Klan? No, I haven't read that. It is my favorite book of American history. I recommend it universally to, to literally everyone that they should buy and read this book. Because what she did is she decided to actually go back through all of the um, second Klan's actual publications. Mm-hmm. 
and read them seriously for the religious rhetoric they use and ask what if you take the religious rhetoric seriously mm -hmm. what does that tell you about the clan it's, it's oh god it's a brilliant and hard book and that's the kind of stuff that that keeps me up at night that we're not it's not that we're becoming nazi germany it's that the second clan is back and winning mm -hmm. right it is jim crow laws but this time with the digital surveillance state it's it's that's the kind of stuff that scares the hell out of me it's the fact that you know you don't have to be wearing hoods to get take, have your picture taken in your Sunday best with lynchings, yeah. right? That's the stuff that that frankly scares the shit out of me. It's the return to the America that was, not needing to create a mythical America that might be. It, it's just re the return to the past is bad for most people, mm -hmm. and the group of people who are really excited about it are the same people who would have been putting on their nicest clothings to go murder African Americans in the South or go murder LGBTQIA uh, Americans or go murder uh, Asian Americans, go murder uh, Hispanic Americans. I mean, it's, it's the laundry list. If you look at the crimes of our country, the group that is trying to turn back whatever progress has been made in the last century are the people who are busy murdering their way through maintaining dominance a century. Mm -hmm. That's what scares me as a historian, as just a human being in this country. Those are the people that keep me up at night. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is absolutely disturbing. I, I share a lot of your concerns that you've just mentioned. And in fact, I think I share all of them. And no, we're, we're not going to recreate some period in history. It's not going to look like anything else. It's going to be brand new. Yeah. It, it might have the echoes of something, but yeah. it's going to be brand new. Yeah. The, uh, the, I, I, I found the, uh, the actual name of that group is the Wolves of Vinland. Oh God, yeah, I have read about the wolves. And Operation Werewolf, which was is evidently oh. dissolved now, but that was something that was uh, uh, run by the same guy. Yeah, am I am I remembering correctly that nowadays they're based outside of Lynchburg? I I wouldn't be surprised. Why not? Yeah. that's that yeah. that seems uh, to be the 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 nexus for quite a bit of things. You know that that like various parts of Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting that you you find areas that where one group gets seated, other groups mm -hmm. don't join them. Well, that's something that's fascinating that I, I noticed about uh, Tennessee is that um, remind me of the 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 pastor's name from Patriot Church. Oh, it's Ken something. Yeah. Um, well, he relocated from Washington to Tennessee. Yes. So he's he's not. He's not local from there. It's, it's Ken, Ken Peters. Peters it's absolutely. Ken Peters. He handed his um, former church over to Matt mm -hmm. Shea, the biblical basis for warfare guy whose um, men's group pastor's sons were both arrested with Patriot Front and Kurt Eileen. Excellent. Way to, way to just weave these things together. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the worst it is, thing. It is it's like, the worst it's thing. Like, this, this is the ugliest <laughs> shirt anybody has ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, but, you know, <laughs> then there's a, uh, I'm going to have to find the guy's name really fast, but the Mario Murillo. All right. So he's an, he's another one. They, they, they there was a, a 4th of July event that, that occurred at uh Grand Ole Opry last year. And it was Robin Bullock, Hake Cunneman and uh, Mario Murillo. And then specifically uh, it was organized by a guy named Kent Christmas. And it, there was a, um, uh, another guy named Dixon who spoke there, but Murillo relocated from Nevada 
and was originally from uh, from California. Okay. But he is now living in Tennessee as well. Mario Murillo is. Oh, is he really? Is, is this the guy that I remember um, wanted, like, oh, I, I, this name, God wants, uh, wants churchgoers, wants Christians to terrify Democrats? Is this the guy? I actually, well, that might, he may have said something like that. Uh, that's very possible. Like heard of Definitely Greg Locke has been, he's been out there yelling that Democrats yeah, are, are yeah, baby-killing yeah, yeah. demons. But Mario Murillo, he's just an example, not because I have a specific thing to, to cite that he said, yeah. but of what, uh, yet another evangelical that is that has collected among everybody else in Tennessee. So there, there, this really is seemed there. There seems to be a center of gravity here in that part of the country. Yeah, and you know, just dr drawing people in. So yeah, and Hank Cunneman, who uh, he is in Nebraska, but he is a, a frequent visitor. <laughs> you know, like mm. guest preaching and yeah. in Tennessee as well, among many other places. Of course, it's not the only place he goes. Yeah, it is. It is these microcosms of of power and influence. Then right, and then from that location you can wield effective mm -hmm. power because you can get you can get a legislatures in the state and depending on where you are and depending on the population uh of, of the state that you're in get your own federal representative yep. uh or at least have enough sway that you you make a decisive swing vote so they have to come to you and that's the kind of stuff that that we should be concerned about and, and i like to hope that maybe maybe we are at this point but it's you know watching all of these groups is a full-time job yes it is yeah, I, I saw the I saw the tweet that you uh the head that you you sent out a couple of days ago about needing a uh, a sabbatical to st <laughs> study the history of Christian nationalism just so you can keep oh. up on the current Christian nationalism. Oh man, like not not even not even keep up. I just need to catch up to yeah. now. It's just like today, I need a sabbatical in the future to catch up to where we are yeah. today, and then I'm <laughs> full time job to then go from there. But it, it just it keeps coming relentlessly. It just keeps coming relentlessly. That's why, thank goodness, there are so many kind of dedicated groups who are paying attention, who you can like tap into other people's expertise, because all of these groups have impact, the local level, at the state level, at the federal. You know, for, for me, it's I, I think I think we finally realized that school board elections matter a great mm -hmm. deal. Yeah. And that people are paying attention to it. And if you are not the one paying attention to it, someone else is paying attention to it. And you should be perhaps a little bit concerned about that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're realizing how much school board elections matter after the extremists realized it. Yeah, I uh, yes, I, I know this quite well. I um, spoke up at the, uh, the uh, school board meeting in the fall about mask mandates and uh, had a local far right blog decide to uh, take a take a week or so to try to uh, convince people to fire me before discovering that I have tenure and my provost uh, believes in tenure. and That was too bad for them. Um, but they, they did this to every every teacher mm -hmm. who spoke at the school board meeting. They went after them people do pay attention and people do pay attention to school board meetings. And when we're not the ones paying attention to school board meetings, they still yeah. are. This is something that has been, it's not Bannon's playbook. It is somebody else that has been on his, on his show a few times who was basically advocating these kinds of ideas for the more extreme edge of the right for the last decade and a half. He's been talking mm. about these very localized elections, these these very these very localized centers of power, and gaining a foothold in city councils, on school boards, oh, like like county elected positions, things like that. Where generally, when you run, you're like often don't even have a challenger, and you just walk yeah. into the office because you're unopposed. 
and the importance of having of placing people in these positions across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's part of we we get really excited for national elections and we pay attention to midterms mm-hmm. maybe. The way we talk about the electoral cycle and the way that we pay attention to it neglects how important local government Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And it makes it makes a it makes all the difference in the world, right? It's why we always I think the the critique is that you have to fight every single election every single time and that's how you build a successful a successful national mm-hmm. party, right? You you have to actively fight for every single seat whether or not you can win you have to fight for every single seat because if you're not the other side controls literally everything and they will always control everything because until you develop a backbench you build name recognition you build a party platform you build a list of candidates that people recognize you are never going to defend anything well this is true about local elections this is not just on the big ones right you do need to be contesting every single federal election Great. You have to be contesting every single state election. You have to be consisting every single local election. You have to have someone running from for dog catcher and for library board and for school board and literally everything else, whatever it takes. And and th- this is, I mean, obviously so so pertinent right now, considering the you know, like we were just talking about the the almost you know basically ruled powers granted to the states over federal election law. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the the state legislatures matter quite a bit in these situations, and so does the governor. And different states have different have uh, yes. d- have different ways of placing a secretary of state to oversee elections, and different secretary different states grant different powers to the secretary of state. Yeah, but these these positions in state government are going to be so much more important going forward. The Roe v. Yes. Wade ruling was essentially a ruling in favor of states' rights. Yeah. In the, worst, in the way. worst way possible. I mean, using using Roe as an example of of the direction that this court wants to take the country. Yeah. Well, and the, the the destruction of the federal right to privacy, which now means that every other connected ruling is open for a state challenge, is open for a federal challenge. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that scares the hell out of me. You know, I mean, Obergefell, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the one that you know, as just an initial salvo. The threat to Obergefell scares the ever living shit out of me, uh, and then it, and then it carries on from there, right? It carries on to every other right going down. I mean, Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of uh, Texas, already said that he would uh, try to enforce Texas's fifty year old anti sodomy law, right? It's not the quiet part out loud; it's it's the open part. It's the bullhorn. It's the we are going to criminalize homosexuality, and we're going to do it in any way that we can. Okay, well, when the monsters tell you that they're monsters, listen to them, believe right. them. Yeah, they're not lying about that. No, no. There are a lot of people that have been emboldened to the extreme to start acting in the way and willfully in the way that they wanted to all along. You know, yes. like the it, it it turns out that this this that much of the 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 progress that we assumed we've been making was actually just progress in making it socially distasteful to behave in this way. But you know, to at least in a public way. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think, and again, I'm going to put on my optimist hat, which is not, which is not <laughs> my normal go-to <laughs> mode, but I think progress has been made. I think we just assumed that that progress was mm-hmm. permanent. Right. And so the thing for me is that we, we love the idea that the, um, the, the, the paraphrasing of the Martin Luther King Jr. paraphrasing of Theodore Parker's, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but I believe it bends towards justice. Theodore Parker funded John Brown's raid. 
Theodore Parker was not sitting around hoping. Theodore Parker reorganized committees in Boston to violate federal uh, law to make sure that enslaved individuals who made it to Boston would get the fuck out of the United States safely mm-hmm. and would stop anyone coming after them and would organize ways to help people get out, right? The person who has this quotation is not playing around. This is not the passively like, well, things will get better. No, he was an abolitionist who believed in action. No, he wasn't Steven Pinker. No, no. Oh, that's a, please don't, please don't get me started <laughs> on my thoughts on Steven Pinker. I, I totally take that point. Yeah. This is somebody who, yes, you know, the, the arc of history does do this. If people do their part. We must bend the arc of, of mm-hmm. the arc. And then you don't just, you don't just kind of lightly tap it once and hope that's enough. You have to keep bending. You have to keep bending it day after day, year after year, generation after generation. The fight is is never done. The other side will always be trying to bend it back. This is literally the only Mm -hmm. way. So in in a world where it is uh, increasingly likely that we will have to be be as close to Theodore Parker as you can, Mm -hmm. that's the lesson at the end of the day, right? You don't have to be a John Brown. We know what happens to John. Yeah. It it turns out bad. All of the... Yeah. And and every, every song of John Brown's body however inspirational it was, we would love to not get to that Mm -hmm. point. But be the Theodore Parker that you want to see in the universe to the best of your ability and by whatever means you can be. Well, I'm I'm definitely aware that you have a busy schedule. <laughs> and uh, it's the it's the last day of my of the summer term, so it is uh, every every professor's favorite moment. It's the moment where I have to grade all of the things I assign. Uh-huh, right. you, uh, you you reap <laughs> you, exactly. you reap the things that you have <laughs> like you brought this on, you brought this on yourself. <laughs> oh, it's it's the worst part. You can't even be right. mad, or if you can be, you can only be mad at yourself. I did this. This is I on assigned me. all these things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and my my philosophy is if I assigned it, I'm going to read every word. I'm going to read it carefully because if I made you do if I made you do the work, then by God, this is the time that I have to right. do the work. So that's that's my weekend up until grilling. Uh-huh. Uh- <laughs> Fantastic. Is, is that a painting of you as the Mona Lisa back there? So this is one of my favorite <laughs> things. Um, I have been blessed my entire teaching career with fantastic uh-huh. students. Um, this is, you know, if, if this office catches on fire, this is one of like three things that's actually making uh, the office with me. This is a painting a student did when I was teaching at SUNY Orange in downstate New York um, for a project in medieval and Renaissance Europe to make a Renaissance piece of uh-huh. art. And the student decided that she was going to paint the Mona Lisa with my face. That is going to be the last image of me with hair. If this building catches on fire, <laughs> this is one of the three things that I clutched to, I clutched my chest as I go out the window. That's fantastic. What, I love it. I love what it so what much. town is, uh, is, is SUNY Orange? Uh, it's in Middletown, Middletown, okay. New York. Okay. All right. I'm not familiar. Um, That's so, so funny. You, I'm not you, familiar with that. I, I grew up in Brockport oh. up, you know, uh, slightly up into the West, but yeah, uh, do you know where do you know where um, Newburgh is? It's lower. It's lower Hudson. So oh. Brockport's out what by Rochester? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, so SUNY Brockport is you know right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's uh, Orange County is as far north as you can be and still be in the uh, in the metro zone. The um, I see the train. The train line goes out. Um, we were all, we were on the train line, Middletown, and then Port Jervis uh, on the Pennsylvania border was the the ending uh-huh. stop on the train line that would go in. Um. I, I loved my students. I loved my colleagues. Um, I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally. My parents are two and a half hours south of me. I mean, you know, I have small children. I had small children. So having the opportunity to come back to the Midwest so that my kids would grow up getting to see their grandparents regularly was very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I loved, I loved SUNY Orange, yeah. loved those kids. Uh, and I still, I still have a number of things that uh, students, like, like gifts and projects and things from students there that I, I treasure. That's fantastic. That, that, so that, that was your yeah. first teaching position? That was, uh, so I was a lecturer at the University of Tennessee. Uh-huh for a year after, uh, after I graduated my PhD. Um, and I, and you know what? I loved it. I loved it yeah. there too. I loved my students. I'm still in contact with a handful of students from, uh, from the university of Tennessee, uh, which is great. And then I was at SUNY orange for a year and then um, applied for my job here at Grandview university was lucky enough to get it. And this is going to be my sixth year here at Grandview. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the great conversation. I, I really oh, Sean, enjoyed thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this, yeah, this, this was this was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, the, the, it definitely was for me as well. I definitely, uh, I, I think I, I, I got the better end of it. <laughs> nah, <laughs> no, you know what? You know what? I've been, I'm going to go grade for the rest of the day. This is this is the high point of my work day. <laughs> I appreciate you. Well, you are absolutely welcome back anytime you like. Absolutely, my pleasure. Anytime you want. Quite quite seriously, anytime. It would be an absolute pleasure. All right. I'll, well, I will definitely take you up on that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. We have a few other Fash Boy episodes coming up, but then I think we might take a break from those for a while and maybe even change the format of the show just a little bit and do a little bit of experimenting. So keep an eye out for the upcoming episodes, and definitely let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter at WetWiredPod. For everyone who's already a supporter of the show, you have our eternal love. But if you're not supporting the show yet, and you'd like to, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash wetwired. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our premium episodes and our growing back catalog. You can also help us by sharing an episode of the show on social, or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time. Go out with power. You are anointed to set at liberty the captives. Esther had that revelation. She said, I won't remain silent. In fact, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. It's not in the constitution. It was in a stinking letter and it means nothing like what they say it does. I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I will open my church and allow my people to assemble, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I will not mask our children in school, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Thank you for your vote.
one thing I just I, I just uh, uh, right before you go, have you seen the recent stuff that has been coming out from the January 6th committee about the hamburger? <laughs> the one that he threw against he the threw wall? He threw the hamburger. <laughs> and, and, and the biggest thing is the ketchup stain going down stain the wall because down. that's the – oh, I mean like as a, as a visual, oh, as a visual oh image <laughs> – of the decline of, of kind of American democracy, you know, we are we are we are a hamburger patty sliding, leaving a streak of ketchup trailing down a wall. We, we are the ketchup stain on the wall of history. That's America, it. The ketchup stain on the That's wall of it. history. <laughs> God, please don't let that be our epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> That is the most apocalyptic ending in the worst, right, right, most modern right. kind of sense I can it is, imagine. It is just one giant ketchup stain that lasts for eternity. Oh, God. Yes. Yes. It's not 1984. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God.